I'm Greg Johnson. Welcome to Countercurrents Radio. We are back with another Saturday stream. My special guest today is Keith Woods. Keith, welcome. Hey, thanks for having me on. Good to be here. So we are going to be discussing a debate that popped up recently on Substack and also social media between Keith Woods and Nima Parvini, also known as Academic Agent, about the role of ideas versus, I guess you could say, just pure power in politics. What drives political and historical change? That, that's how I understand this question. And I thought that Keith had some very good ideas in response to this and that Parvini had uh, stated his views in a pretty crisp way, crisp and controversial way. There have been some other discussions of this. This fellow Bronsky, who likes to write about mutational load, has, has chimed in. So there's a lot to talk about here. I think it'll be very, very interesting. Folks, if you would like to enter the conversation and you'd like to help us out by doing super chats, do it by following the banner at the bottom of the screen. Go to entropystream.live forward slash countercurrents, all one word. And we're not streaming there, but hit the green button. You can take out a credit card and leave an online chat, and we would very much appreciate that. We will get to that in the course of today's stream. Also, you can send tips through Odyssey, and you can send DLive tokens if you would like. We will cash those in. They add, those little ninjaginis and diamonds and lemons or whatever add up. So we're happy to take those as well. Next week, we are going to start streaming on Rumble. So we'll see how that goes. So let's just dive into this. And I want to quote academic agent from the thing he wrote on the 5th, the James Lindsay Debate Club Theory of History. James Lindsay imagines that the reality in which we live today is the result of a series of public debates, essentially contests over ideas, the winners of which get to shape the, the new reality tomorrow. I shall call this the James Lindsay Debate Club Theory of History. Against this, I posit the academic agent power theory of history, which goes like this. People get into power, whether by force or fraud, and then, and then tell people what they should think, which nearly always coincides with actions they have already taken. So I don't know where to begin when I, when I hear things like that. I've been battling for years against what I call political cynicism. I wrote an article years ago called The Moral Factor, which is a manifesto against cynicism. And the, the cynical viewpoint is basically that ideas don't matter. It's all claptrap. Values don't matter. It's all just talk. What really matters is power. And power has two dimensions here. One is money and the other is just physical force, the, the ability to just crush your enemies. And Therefore, if we want to change our society, we need to get offline, stop all this online talk, and we need to start accumulating guns and money, basically, physical power and financial power, and that's how we win. And this takes a lot of forms. It takes the form that I call the tough talk from the hard man on the internet, uh, where basically they just say all this intellectual talk is effete wankery. We don't change anything this way. Ideas fundamentally don't matter. 
values don't matter. It's power that matters. And my response to always uh, to this has always been, okay, well, if that's true, we're doomed because we don't have any power now. We don't have any wealth now. The only way we're going to get out of this corner that we're in is to talk our way out of it. It's sort of a cliche in, in Western movies. The guy pulls his gun out and points it at you and says, you're not talking your way out of this one, buddy. But honestly, that's all we can do. We can talk our way out of this. We can persuade people that we are on the right, the establishment's on the wrong, society's going in the wrong direction. We can fix it. And we can persuade people to leave their side and come over to our side, or at least just be neutral. We can make friends, we can reduce the number of our enemies, and eventually, if this process goes on long enough, we can start actually affecting political change. Uh, so uh, when I see arguments like this, I, I just think, uh, what's the point? What's the point of, of arguments like this? It, it just seems to, the message here seems to be, to me at least, give up. And, and when he says that basically ideas in politics are just after-the-fact rationalizations for power interests, well, I have to ask myself, okay, what is the academic agent power theory of history trying to accomplish then? How is this an after-the-fact rationalization for some existing power structure in society? That, that's the first question that comes to mind. What, what are your thoughts on this? You've written two articles about it now, and, I, and I'd like to, like to hear your uh, take on it. Yeah, if people want to go read them, they're on keithwoods.pub. You link to it on, on your article promoting the stream as well. I agree with you. A couple of years ago, elite theory got quite popular. Um, maybe I had something to do with it. I, I made a couple of videos on, on Chris Bond and his book, Nemesis, which is what he outlines as, I think he called it the, the juvenilian theory of power. Um, and some people got into this, but I think they, they took it too far, especially academic agent. And he started coming out with these arguments that actually all ideas, all ideology, all arguments are post hoc rationalizations. And any justification for a state, any justification for a regime is simply BS that's generated because it's it's useful to justify the actions that the regime would have taken anyway. And it's a totally one-way process, right? The ideas aren't influencing the actions they're taking. Uh, Quote-unquote power is, right? And what motivates power? Um, we never really get an answer to that because presumably uh, power in quotation marks has, has some kind of ideology motivating it, but we never get to that question, right? Power decides things. Um, a laid out some examples. You know, he said Margaret Thatcher was just waving around Hayek as post hoc justification for, you know, the Americanization of, of the British economy and 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 the interests of these economic elites. Um, so yeah, I, I think it becomes very secular and uh, uh, sorry, very circular. And like you said, it's it's ultimately a performative contradiction uh, because here is Nima Parvini saying in his article, well. Keith Woods only believes this because he's a theory cell and because he wants to believe that ideas influence history. And people that agree with Keith Woods, they agree because they like him personally. And everything after that is, is just post hoc justification. It's like, well, okay, then <laughs> there's some personal motive you have for coming up with your theory. You don't actually think it's true. You didn't come to it by, by some uh, reasoning process. So I guess we'll just have to do this back and forth where we speculate on, on what's motivating the other person 
And uh, whoever agrees with us, it's just because they like us more. Um, but then it's like, why have you written a two and a half thousand word article um, presenting arguments for this case, right? So he never explains how he alone is able to step out of this uh, this this BS process where every argument is is just post hoc rationalization. Um, him making arguments, him presenting this case, him trying to convince the audience this is true, shows that on on some kind of level, at least in his behavior, he doesn't believe this. And yeah, I mean, the, the problem with it and the reason I've, I've felt like pushing back, I pushed back in a video a couple of years ago, and now I, I saw this substack by him, I immediately wrote a response, is because I see what this leads to. Like, I, I see his followers and, you know, they're just, it's just cynicism, right? Everything is some kind of, uh, you know, elite machination that we can't possibly understand. And we are powerless, right? Ideas can't change anything. Um, oil ideology is is just a cynical BS. Um, what do we do from that position, right? And then when when we can make an impact, when things do happen, well, if change is actually being made, you know, according to this theory of power, right? It's because the powers that be have have decided to do this, and what we're seeing is just this kind of ideological coding. So you know, even when when Bandy ADL was happening, it's like, oh look, Elon Musk responded to this. This is proof that this is power is playing its hand and all of these people are being used as pawns. Oh, and, yes. You know, yeah. Yeah. Part of this is ahead. this this thing about, well, is the establishment going to put away woke now because of its own nefarious uh, goals? That's the way that they would spin that, right? Anything that that looks to us like successful populist pushback, they will think, hmm, how is this generated by the existing political establishment? What are these people up to? What are they trying to do with this? And it's hard to refute this view. It's hard to find, figure out what would con, uh, constitute negative evidence for this or a disproof of it, because everything can be construed as, well, it's like the, it's like the, the paranoid conspiracy themes. You know, people will say, isn't it convenient that this happened at this time? Everything is convenient for somebody, right? At some time. That doesn't mean it happened because, because it was convenient or, oh, this benefits so-and-so, therefore so-and-so pulled the string or pushed the button that caused it. That doesn't follow either. So, so it, it bleeds into the, this kind of paranoid conspiratorial view of history, which is also deeply demoralizing for us because it basically means that nothing we do actually is going to change the the power structure and honestly if i were the power structure i would be i would be stacking greenbacks you know i'd be sending super chats i would be i would be supporting people who push this kind of helplessness out there uh, anyway i'm sorry i interrupted you go ahead right well wouldn't you know wouldn't it have been great if if the the radical left in the 1960s held, held a view like this and, and they sat on the sidelines uh, right. in elite theory and, and speculating who the, the, the elite would choose to put in power next. Um, but yeah, I, I use some illustrations to, to demonstrate what you're talking about there. I mean, um, AA had some of these examples in his first article where he's like, we can go through anything, right? Uh, climate change is post-hoc BS to justify this agenda. Margaret Thatcher pretending to believe in uh, economic monetarism and, and all this libertarianism stuff. That was post-hoc BS for this uh, financial agenda. Um, 
you know, I forget some of the examples you use. Wokeism is just post-hoc BS for the civil rights regime, civil rights laws. And yeah, I, I just presented some of my own examples. I don't actually believe them, but you just to point this out, it's like, and it's all arguments you hear from conspiracy theorists. It's like, well, round earth was just post-hoc uh, BS to justify undermining the church uh, away from flat earth. And uh, Christianity was, was post-hoc BS to control the masses. Uh, Constantine pretended to, to convert. And yeah, you could go down the list and you could do this with literally like every uh, major political upheaval in history ever. Um, and I think A in his first video on it even said, oh, it's very fun. You know, apply this to any example you want. And it's like, well, you know, if you can apply it to anything and it's completely unfalsifiable, um, yeah, like you said, at that point, it, it becomes kind of hard to argue with, right? Because you can literally apply that to anything. Yeah, it 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 becomes an e-day fix, and by definition, at that point, you're you've left the realm of reasoning, and you're just dealing with basically self, a sort of a self-enclosed system of fantasy, and and a lot of ideologies are that way. There's they're self-reinforcing. You can't ever come up with a, a counterexample. They always have an answer for everything, which doesn't necessarily mean that they're right, unfortunately, and it. At that point, what do you do? You, you throw up your hands. At least I throw up my hands trying to convince people like that. But it's important to respond to them anyway and to do so patiently and civilly because there are people watching who are persuadable. And we would like to basically prevent these people from being fooled and drawn into this kind of mental prison that's that's on, on the offer here. So... Uh, there's some there's some choice lines in his second piece from February 22nd. He says basically his argument is that all political fo formulas boil down to ultimately uh, boil down ultimately to BS 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 BS. Therefore, I rule. Okay, fine. So you're BSing, right? We, we let's take this theory at face value. So this theory is BS. And this theory is subordinated to power interests, apparently to his power interests. You know, he's going to rule somehow this way. Okay. It, it just doesn't add up. Why do powerless people like us argue over these sorts of issues? If, if we argue over these sorts of issues, then we, I guess we're just wasting our time. If academic agent is correct then he himself is just wasting his time. Or he's actually in the service of some existing power structure. And he, he invites us to engage in that kind of paranoid speculation at that point, which I, I tend not to want to do. I tend to think that we should have a somewhat charitable attitude towards people when we, we talk, the question of sincerity comes up. Now, that doesn't mean I believe that everybody is sincere. In fact, I believe that very large numbers of people, probably the majority of people, are not sincere. Uh, but I do think you have to uh, you know, go into this with a somewhat charitable assumption, at least initially, that, okay, we're dealing with people who have sincere beliefs that happen to be tragically wrong, and let's try and sort this out. And in so doing, we might actually persuade whoever is persuadable who might be watching. But we, we should recognize, though, and, and what he's doing here is he's, he's pointing out stuff that's true. But then, like every bad theory, 
Every bad theory begins with some true facts and then tries to totalize them and make them the, the, the one ring that rules and decodes everything, right? So power does influence people's, people's claims. James Burnham talks about how FDR ran on an anti-war platform and then, of course, went to war. Isn't that proof that people are insincere? Well, it's not proof that Dante was insincere when he was writing his De Monarchia, which is the conclusion that he immediately leaps to, that basically any kind of political theorizing is insincere and it's just in the service of existing power interests. That doesn't follow. But it is true that many people are insincere. Many people will profess to, to believe things because they want to sell you something. Many people will profess to believe things that they don't really believe because it, they feel that that somehow empowers them. They, they cloak themselves in virtue, even though they're actually very vicious people and they don't care about what's good at all. I mean, all of this is true, and you have to keep this in mind. It's, a, it's one of these restraints. It's one of these objective factors out there that we have to keep in mind, but it can't be totalized without... It, it's it, you. You get into the, the the liar's paradox, right? If you say many people lie and are insincere, that's true. If you stand up and say all people are liars and insincere, you immediately have refuted yourself, or you you've you've stated the liar liar's paradox, right? Everybody lies. Are you lying, <laughs> or is that true? If it's true, then your universal generalization falls flat. If you are lying, then maybe other people aren't. You, you, the, the position blows up by taking things that are genuinely factual and then totalizing them into a, into a big false nothing. Yeah. I mean, if I was to be charitable, I'd say, you know, he would say or his followers would say that he, he is offering something here. He is trying to help in the sense that, OK, he doesn't have any, um, you know, he's kind of above it all. Right. He's, he's the, the Gen X cynic. He, he sees that all these ideologies are, are just so stories. But he's kind of offering us a lesson as as the, the academic stepping in that he's, he's telling us these lessons about power that he's got from elite theory and from his study of history. Um, and he's trying to give us this, this these power lessons so we don't get fooled. Um, and he did kind of, I think, walk his argument back a little bit in the second article. Um, but at that point, it, it kind of just became a series of, of truisms where he's like, well, uh, if if your ideology stops you from doing what's necessary to attain power, then you won't attain power because uh, power selects for people that do this. And it's like, well, OK, if that's the great insight is like if, if you don't uh, if you don't seek power, you won't get power. It's like, OK, did, did we need uh did we need the course on, on elite theory to, to get that great truth? But the problem in his, in his second article and when he kind of, uh, you know, even when, he, when he's offering these lessons, right, you know, be more cynical, be more pragmatic. Politics is, is just ruining your friends and enemies. Is the example he gives, he says, well, everyone gets to power by force or fraud and then the ideology comes. But he gives these examples and it's like if they didn't have a unifying ideology, uh, if they didn't have shared morals, ideals that they believed in and wanted to enact and were willing to sacrifice for, none of these people would have gotten in power. Um, he gave the example of Mussolini. He said there was no fascist ideology. Uh, the only thing they had going for them is they said they were the best people to rule. 
and they took over and then after that came the ideology of fascism that's it's not really true completely right? false yeah right right and and what would that vanguard have you know what would get them out on the streets what would organize them if uh, the only thing motivating them is like oh, us personally we would like to rule like obviously on on the level of regime change in, in a in a state and in, in modern mass society um you know rewarding your personal friends isn't really going to uh, get you very far in, in trying to do regime change so of course you need ideology as as an organizing principle right he, he says the same thing about um you know the the, the iranian revolution he's like well if, if they had followed uh, a specific doctrine of islam to the t that they mightn't have got in power um but again it's like if, if they were cynical if they were just uh, as he says um by force or fraud, they get into power. If they didn't actually believe in that brand of Islam and that it should be ruled in Iran, uh, it would not have been them as the organized minority that that got power. So there's this like unhelpful um, distinction where it's like you have the people that believe in ideology on one hand, you know, the useful rubes, and then you have these cynical Machiavellians that form organized minorities and take power. Um, but it's like, how do organized minorities take power? Uh, what unites them if if not ideology and, and shared ideals, and then they can you know package that and bring it to the masses and and use that as a form of power. Um, but it seems like his analysis, at least to me, it seems like it ignores that, especially when he, he goes to these examples and he says things like, you know, the fascists had no ideology before Mussolini took power. Yeah, I mean, it's simply untrue. And the historical record uh, refutes that. It's simply untrue. One could say, I suppose, if you're talking about small-scale societies, that you can put together a group based on nothing but personal loyalty, right? You, you've got some chieftain. Uh, he's your guy. You're somewhat related to him. He's ambitious. He welds you together into a raiding band, and you go off and uh, conquer some poor farmers and lord it over them. That's possible in a small enough scale society. That's conceivable. And what you've got there is non-ideological power politics. Well, you can't do that on a really large scale society. You, you, you don't have the ability to create mass political movements that are based simply on personal loyalty. Right? You can have charismatic leaders and that really helps. Uh, that that does help. The more charismatic the leader, you you do have those factors there. Most of those relationships, though, are you, you, what people call today parasocial. They're essentially imaginary relationships that people form with some figure. It's like, you know, it's on a scale. Uh, on that scale, on that continuum, are people with imaginary relationships to say pop stars, right? Uh, stalkers and super fans, uh, as well as people who follow charismatic political leaders based on largely imaginary relationships. But if you really have large scale mass politics, you can't just depend on that. You've got to have a doctrine. You've got to have ideas. That's what gets everybody on the same page. That's what makes your movement of one mind. And, and so, yes, ideology comes first with mass organized politics. Ideology also comes first with political religions. Does uh, Parvini believe that Muhammad, 
first conquered and then came up with a doctrine, a, a religion, as an after-the-fact justification for his his creation of a new society. Does he believe that th- this was what happened with the founding of Mormonism as well? That that first Joe Smith created a, a church and then later he came up with a doctrine. We know that that's not actually how it happened. So you, you can say, yes, on some level, a small scale, maybe, that you can have pure non-ideological power politics is just based on, say, kinship and charismatic leadership and tribalism. But we don't live in that world anymore. And this is one of the reasons why sort of people, people in our movement who want to talk about neo-tribalism and so forth sort of strike me as, well, they're resigning from politics uh, in the modern sense. I guess they're counting on the the world collapsing and billions dying and us going back to a much less populated world where things can start over on a very, very simple pre-ideological level. I don't think that that's wise to bet on that. But yeah, the, there, there's some little truth there, right? But it's, it's, a, it's a little truth that's pretty much irrelevant to modern mass politics. Bolshevism was not created after the fact by Lenin after he seized power for no reason whatsoever. It, I mean, we can go through long lists of historical uh, instances. When you look at the rise of neoliberalism, neoliberalism came about this was a success in some ways. It was it came about due to the success of the ideological politics of uh, libertarian economist types. They didn't get all they wanted, right? But they they certainly created a new consensus in the West that we're not going back to centralized planning. And people like Bill Clinton and Joe Biden will say he's a capitalist. Right. That that was a change, a radical change in the past 40 or so years based on ideological conversion of thoughtful people, you know, due to the efforts and institutional institution buildings and 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 propaganda and scholarly efforts of of advocates for free market economics. Right. Yeah. He used the example of of Thatcher and he said uh Maggie Thatcher waving Hayek was post hoc BS for uh, this, uh, you know, American economic agenda. Um, but again, you know, you just run into contradictions when you try and separate these things. It's like, did the, you know, did quote unquote power magic up um, neoliberalism? You, you know, did the ideology come after? I mean, th- these people were, you know, Hayek was writing in, in the, the 1940s, right? I mean, these ideas were around and it's like, yes, at a certain point, elites uh, supported this stuff and they used it to, to justify policy changes. Um, and they began to spread it around media and it began to, you know, enter people's minds in, in more accessible ways. Um, but they were doing that with ideas that pre-existed that. They were doing that with ideas created by ideologues. And um, you know, look, what was the most influential uh, ideology of, of the 20th century? I don't know, maybe you disagree, but I think, you know, if you look at communism or Marxism and, and uh, you know, the, the impact that had on the world in the 20th century, it's, it's obviously huge. 
Um, you know, Marx was an intellectual. I don't think it was uh, it was some post hoc BS for a, a regime change he'd already done or something. And I don't think the Bolsheviks would have been uh, magicked up out of thin air by power if they didn't already exist, right? So I yeah. think you run into contradictions when when you try and uh, separate any of this stuff and you know re- reduce part of it down to the other, whether it's whether it's economics, um, you know, individual actors in history, ideas. And that's another thing you find as well. I know you were talking about the the tough guy, right? That says we just need to do something, right? They're, they're writing capital letters. You have to do something, and you know they're they're in the they're in all the all the chats typing away their comments as well. Um, uh, you know, a similar thing you get is is people will be like, well, you know, the problem is morality. The problem is ideology. Or whites are too ideological. They're they're too moral, and you know, so there's a certain degree of truth in it. But then it's it's like, okay, well, how how are you going to correct that? um it's like well presumably we're going to make the case and we're going to make the argument to them that actually it is moral to uh take your own side to have a degree of ethnocentrism to preserve your nation to pass it on to your children um it's it's right it's correct to to have immigration restriction um you're probably not going to convince them that by going around screaming might makes right and and the the weak should fear the strong and and you know these these kinds of things so it's like, you know, think it a, a step further, right? I mean, it's, it's again, this kind of simplistic, like power and ideology are these totally separate domains where as soon as you try and separate them at all, you just run into contradictions. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you on this uh, substantially. Uh, we have um, a few super chats here. So let's go through these uh, and then we'll wend our way back into some of these texts. Ulrich Varanga sent $11 through Odyssey. Thank you. Any thoughts on how to lessen the infighting between members of the dissident right? Well, when they all agree with me, the infighting will stop. No, seriously. um, I don't think there's any way of lessening the infighting on the dissident right. So I think that what we should do is instead of adopting this kind of, you know, motherly, oh, you boy, stop bickering uh, attitude, this sort of anti-intellectualism that we we make the the differences work for us. Uh, we are right now largely an online and intellectual movement. Even the people who want to take it offline and make it unintellectual are online typing these ideas out. And so let's just make the best of it. Let's make the best of it. We we should be going back and forth and arguing, but we should do it in the most productive way possible, which I think is to try and be collegial, try and be polite, try and try to be charitable with people. Remember that there are people watching that may be persuadable, even if you've given up on your opponent. And this is how our arguments grow and improve. Uh, so we have this vast online debate. Uh, and if, if, we, if we use it well, Uh, We are going to have the best arguments. We're also just going to have the most interesting scene intellectually. The left is really dead. Intellectually speaking, the left has been dead and intellectually bankrupt for a generation now. The most interesting ideas are on the right. The most interesting debates are on the right. And that attracts bright people to us. And that is one of the things that's going to help us win. So uh, I, I think that we should not 
bemoan the fact that there's infighting and disagreement, but just try to make it work for us and try to make it as civil and productive as possible. Keith, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I agree. That was my initial thought of response as well, is, is try and keep it to the ideas as much as possible. I mean, look, me and, and uh, Nima Parvini have had a, a, a pretty uh, bitter feud, right? He, he was uh, doing a kind of uh, him or me ult ultimatum, and he, he was badjacking me for, for the last couple of years. And he, he did actually apologize for that since I published it, so I don't, I don't hold the grudge. But even in that case, you know, when I responded, I, I try to stick to the facts, post the receipts. This is why I think this person is a problem and, uh, you know, you shouldn't uh, support this guy. I try and stick to facts like that. Generally, um, you know, you can you can have very spirited and, and uh, you know, passionate arguments about ideas. And uh, it's pretty easy to make up after that, no matter how, uh, how much you disagree. But, you know, sometimes there's a cycle where the personal insults start and it kind of spirals and it gets to the point of no return. Um, but for me, really, I mean, I don't mind any disagreement. The only thing that's kind of a, a red line is, I think, when, when the kind of uh, bad jacking starts. And then, you know, at a certain point, I'll just, uh, you know, I'll just uh, pretend someone doesn't exist because they're just a toxic influence. I mean, the funniest right. example of that for me was uh, <laughs> uh, l last year when er Eric Stryker suggested me and Joel Davis were feds because we were able to travel to the UK. And uh, yeah. just un under two weeks later... His uh, party colleagues, Tony Hoveter and, and Warren Balog, were uh, unveiled in, in the UK at the, the PA conference. So I thought that was kind of a funny example of how that kind of thing can backfire. Where you're like, anyone that enters the UK is a Fed. And then, um, you know, two of your co-party uh, leaders are, are in the UK like a week later. I thought that was a pretty funny. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, the, the, the kind of bad faith argument that I, I really don't like, and Stryker was, was a master of this, he would, instead of disagreeing with you about something, he would he would turn to his imagined audience in grandstand. I, I remember this, and uh, there were I had very little interaction with him because he would rapidly go very dishonest. But a few years ago, uh, there was this little interaction with him on Twitter when I still had my normie or my countercurrents account, my New Right America account. I think it was on that account long discarded, long canceled. But anyway, uh, I responded to something and he, and he responds out into the ether. Greg is a well-known counter jihadist. It's like, he lying piece of shit. Uh, I mean, if you, if you wanted to, if you wanted to say, Greg, are you a counter jihadist? That would have been one thing, right? But just to pretend like this is a known fact and he's just going to tell this to the world and of course, uh, you know, it's, it's an attempt to basically bad jack at me in the process. Uh, I, don't, I don't see any benefit to keeping people like that around, honestly. So yeah, the people who go super, super personal, the people who grandstand rather than actually have a, a conversation with you, those are bad signs. But, you know, there, there are better ways and worse ways to do infighting. And I think we should just try, we should just accept the fact that we're going to have passionate disagreements and try and make it work for us. And it'll make us, make us an interesting movement or keep us an interesting and vital movement. And that's part of the appeal. So Lovecraft has donated one diamond. Thank you very much. Gaddius writes in with 10 US dollars. Uh, it is said that power is zero sum. If that's true, 
then it just is. It's always there. So it seems that ideology would be the only important factor in its use or acquisition. Am I missing something? Great work in your Substack, Keith. Keith, what are your thoughts on this? Do you want me to repeat it? Um, I'm not 100% sure I followed it, but if uh, if I think he's getting at what I think he is, it's um, I think it's a point I made that, you know, if AI's theory is true, how would you even explain regime change, right? Because it's it's always power. Like I kind of alluded to this earlier, but he, he'll use term the a term like power selects for, uh, and it's like, well, what is power in that case if not individuals, and what's motivating the the individuals and what they're selecting for if if not ideas? So I found this stuff a lot with with some of the the things he writes. He'll say, you know, power selects for or the rules of power mean that only these ideas will triumph. It's like what are you talking about there? You know, when you start treating power as this kind of impersonal force that selects for ideas, you know, these are people and people are, are motivated by ideas. Um, they're motivated by morals. Um, they're motivated by all sorts of things. So sometimes I find this, this kind of language um, you get in these arguments unhelpful as well. Um, but yeah. I, I may be way off to American what Gaddius was, was getting at. I, I think he's just simply saying that power is just there. It just is. And so it seems, he says, that ideology would be the only important factor in its use or acquisition. I think we are missing something here. I don't know if you're missing something, but I think we are missing something. But, but elaborate on this, Gaddius. I know you're interesting. Uh, you're, you're listening. So keep, 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 keep on this. Uh, Lovecraft has donated a diamond and he quotes, Jonathan Bowden, greatness is in the mind and in the fist. And uh, Archie writes in with five US dollars on a business trip to Chicago. I got lost walking to my hotel. I found myself surrounded by a black gang. The leader asked me why I was there. I said I was lost. They discovered I was Canadian. I talked my way out of the situation. That wouldn't be possible if I wasn't a likable Canadian. Okay. Yeah. Sometimes you can talk your way out of situations. Whenever I used to travel in Europe way back when, I would always, I had a little Canadian flag lapel pin <laughs> that I would wear because it was, it was very useful as a way of just sort of sidestepping quickly around, stepping over in the Bowden terms, stepping over anti-Americanism, especially, especially from the French. Uh, they, they somehow, they saw that little Canadian flag, that corporate logo flag, uh, flag of the maple leaf. And they thought, ah, we'll treat him nicely. We won't cheat this one. So anyway, yeah, uh, being Canadian helps. ABC writes in with 10 US dollars. The primal brain is in charge of the four Fs, feeding, fighting, fleeing, and fucking. Ideologies facilitate the successful pursuit of the four Fs for better survivability of one's own tribe, usually at the expense of other tribes. Isn't the logical or moral foundation of, of an ideology secondary? Well, you see, personally, I, I see that and I think, no, that's too simple. Because that really is just saying that everything is about uh, basic human needs. Uh, and I think most human behavior isn't easily explained by reference to basic human needs. And I don't think most of history or ideology is explainable by basic human needs. If you look at history, what you find is as soon as a society gets to any level of scale and complexity, 
it becomes organized around not meeting basic human needs, not around realism in, in, the, in the sense that you know, Machiavelli would talk about, you know, again, uh, health and longevity and, and independence and power and stuff like that. Most societies are organized around the equivalent of the potlatch, where you take basic human necessities and you immolate them. Most societies are organized around the sacred, and the sacred really is just the immolation of practical reality for something unreal. Therefore, cynical understandings of human history, materialist understandings of human history that you get with people like Hobbes or Marx, you know, the sort of the bourgeois idea that basically you can understand human behavior simply in terms of greed and fear. That's, that's just inadequate. And pe people think that that's an alternative to moralism. Well, actually it's not. It's actually a moral theory in and of itself. It, it's, it's, it's the modern bourgeois man. It's the moral theory bequeathed to us by people like Hobbes and Locke, which basically says that the most important thing is security, longevity, satisfying your, your creature comforts, your basic human needs. That's a moral theory. That's not human nature. That's moral theory. And that was a moral theory that was sprung on us 400 years ago or more now, knowingly in contradiction to everything that made the world go around, which was all about immolating reality in the name of certain ideals, certain unreal things, religion, right? For instance. So I just think that's that's overly simplified. Put it this way, you know, it, it's it's an error. It's a it's an error to say that the peacock's tail performs a function. Right? You you hear this in the nature doc documentary. The the narrator says the purpose of the peacock's tail is to attract the peahen. That's not true at all. Uh, peahens are completely, uh, you know, they, they don't care about all this plumage. They're indifferent to it. They're practically the only beasts on the planet who don't get, you know, gape at the, at the, at the peacock's tail. What's going on here? The idea that everything that exists performs a function is really false. And, and you know, and it's, it's, it's a, it's a fiction. It's not even Darwinian. The truth is, is that Nature just spews out all kinds of bizarre, exuberant forms that have absolutely no survival value at all. But as long as they don't kill you off before you can reproduce, they'll stick around. Okay. And it, and it's just, it just goes overboard to say that all of these things perform some kind of practical meat and potatoes function connected with feeding, fighting, fleeing, etc. That that's that's over interpreting things. That's that's a just so story. It's a reductionism, and culture's that way too. Culture just spews out all kinds of unrealities, and organizes society around basically burning up practical things to on on the altar of the unreal. So you know, I I just I just don't buy that, and. Uh, so your, your conclusion isn't the logical or moral foundation of an ideology secondary. 
I guess you're saying it's secondary to survival value, but I don't think that survival comes first. Survival comes later. It, it is a culling mechanism. If your ideology is so insane that you, you know, you stop reproducing, it will disappear. But short of something like that, all kinds of crazy ideas persist and they, 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 they levitate there. They levitate there in this numinous unreality, unconnected with basic human needs, like you think come first. I don't think they're first. Keith, I'm sorry, I'm filibustering here. Well, I agree with what you said. I mean, it's it's kind of restating uh, the AA position in, in a way, but you know, if that were true, right? If if all ideology was uh, post hoc rationalization for uh, the four Fs, I mean, uh, white people wouldn't be in in the the trouble we're in, would we? I mean, we we observe that our people are willing to uh, forego fighting for their their countries and their survival. Um, because of a, a, the power of a, of a word, an ideology like racist, uh, they're willing mm -hmm. to forego fucking to save the planet. Um, so, we, you know, we see in our own times, people will, will sacrifice all of these uh, more immediate uh, necessities for high ideals, especially. Our yeah. Country. Yeah. Uh, Zed writes in with 20 US dollars. Thank you very much for that. Uh, and that, that does it so far for Super Chats. Years ago, there was this guy writing as Tanstoffel. I, I don't know if he's still around or not. But Tanstoffel, I actually invited him to an event that I did once where he got up and piously lectured Kevin McDonald that he wasn't going hard enough on the Jews. At that point, I, I just sort of rolled my eyes uh, and thought, ah, I made a mistake. <laughs> I made a mistake inviting this guy. But anyway, this, this guy... I remember years ago, more than a decade ago, he was going very hard on Jared Taylor for talking about pathological altruism, which is a very interesting book of academic studies on behavior that you would have to describe as pathological altruism. And he said that this is just a, an attempt to fool white people into looking the other way and, and not recognizing the fact that the reason why we're dying out as a race is because of the nefarious influence of the Jews. And yet the irony of this was, I mean, this guy basically held the view that it was simply inconceivable that people would sincerely hold beliefs that would undermine their own ethnic genetic interests. And yet this guy also was very candid about the fact that he had a Jewish wife and four half Jewish children and that he was advocating a form of society that they could not be part of. And it, it was just, it was so frustrating to me. It was like, dude, if it's possible for you to be so caught up in these ideas that you are advocating a society where your children have no future, why is it inconceivable for you that other people are doing similar crazy things to create a, a world where white people have no future? It, it just was so frustrating to me. And I, I, couldn't, I couldn't get him to confront that strange contradiction. But anyway, yeah, it, it, it's a real thing. I want to talk a bit about this uh, this fellow Bronsky. I just saw on Twitter before we started this stream that he had written something in response to this saying that actually, guys, it's not just power, it's mutational load that we have to 
uh, take into account. The power of ideas is is a lot less powerful than you think when you re- when you recognize that certain ideas are the kinds of ideas that you get from people who are mutants, spiteful mutants. It's sort of Nietzsche's slave revolt morals uh, recast in human biodiversity terms, in 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 terms of his theory of of mutational load. And I I would like to just talk a bit about that before we wrap up. So, what's your the your basic response to that? Yeah, I, I responded to this guy Bronsky before on, on my Substack. He um, it was a similar kind of thing. He he said that I was uh, this thing he called an idealist. Um, I think because I said that I prescribe that I believe in metaphysical idealism before. So he took that to mean that I think that. Uh, you know, the caricature I presented basically that I think that everything in history is just shaped by who has the best ideas and who wins debates and, and um, uh, just a real straw man. Uh, so when I saw this, I was kind of expecting the same thing. And, and I, I scrolled through it and I saw <laughs> he quantified my position and his position. And he said, Keith Woods gives that uh, 90% of, uh, you know, how things are determined, how history is shaped, 90% to ideas. 10% to economics and 0% to genes. And, you know, I immediately uh, rolled my eyes and, and said, here we go again. You know, this, uh, <laughs> this whole like separate and these things where uh, I think uh, history is like 15% genes, 20% Machiavellianism, uh, 25% economics. I mean, this is uh, doesn't make any sense to me to separate these things. And I just responded to him briefly before I came on. I said, I was just like, look, of course, um, you know, I know all the arguments. Uh, you know, Ed Dutton has, has popularized a lot of these about um, spiteful mutants and the rise of, of mutational loads after the Industrial Revolution, the lowering of, of childhood mortality um, allows a lot of people to exist that would not have existed in other times. They have maladaptive beliefs that tend towards leftism. Uh, it's like, of course, this is a factor. Um, but to say that it's, it's pretty much all biology and that this explains everything uh, again, it's kind of a chicken and egg question. It's like, well, what's determining breeding patterns, right? I mean, uh, societies have, have different breeding patterns. Some societies, you know, different uh, fertility rates, different types of people having kids, people from different socioeconomic positions. And, you know, that's certainly shaped by what's the dominant ideology of your society. Economic shapes it to a degree. Um, you know, this other category he had of, of power politics, Machiavellianism, well, I mean, that shapes the economic system, that shapes what ideas are dominant. So when you start separating these into like four different categories and you're like, it's 90% this, that just becomes kind of incoherent to me. I don't know how you, how you separate any of these and, and put them in their own box. I mean, they're all in this dynamic interplay. Um, but when I see someone saying that I think it's 0% genetics because I said ideas and ideology is important, um, it, it's kind of hard for me to take something like that seriously, honestly. Yeah, that's that's a straw man, obviously. Uh, again, what we've got here is we've got the error of reductionism or blowing up. You blow, I'll call it blow upism. You take one small truth that is actually true in a larger context, and then you blow it up into a total expira- uh, explanation for everything. And then it becomes false. And that's that's a pattern. Uh, that's definitely a pattern. So I w- am looking at Aperia magazine. 
And boy, they're really doing a lot of stuff. Oh, there's a piece. Here it is. Yeah. Leftism and mutation. Yeah, he wrote that. I think he, I saw, I didn't actually read it, but I saw they published something by him where he was, he was Bronsky and, and Archer. Yeah. Okay. I just wanted to make sure it was him. Anyway, I'll, I'll put this in the chat for folks if you want to click on it. My, my attitude on this is, is very simple. I, I agree. Yes. Eugenics, biology affect ideas. They're one of these limiting factors out there. They're one of these objective factors out there that limit ideas. For instance, if the human average IQ were 64, ideas would have far less power than they do. Why? Because most people would be too stupid to believe bad theories or good theories. It just wouldn't happen. People would be impermeable to ideology. And so that's, that's a factor. And of course, there are people that dumb. And there is a bell curve. You know, the, the vast majority of people are sort of in the middle and they're somewhat immune to theories to whatever extent that theories require IQ. That's just true. That's just a fact. We, we, we understand that. The same thing is true with mutational factors that might cause people to feel, I don't know, disagreeable, miserable, and want to push the transvaluation of values in society. So instead of losing weight or whatever, they, they want society to love them the way they are. Something like that, right? I understand that. And, and the more botched and miserable people in a society, the more you're going to have a constituency for that kind of politics. Okay, that's, that's definitely correct. No question about that. I totally agree with that. My only question is, what does this imply for politics, for actual political change? Does it mean that we first have to deal with the spiteful mutant problem before we're going to get sensible politics? Well, if that's true, then we're doomed, right? It's like saying, well, first you gain power. It's like, no, well, wait, wait, we don't have power. What do we do to get power? I don't know. First you gain power, right? That That's just not helpful. First you have a a civilization-wide eugenics program, and then you're saved. Well, how do we get that civilization-wide eugenics program off the ground? We have to get power. How do we get power? Well, we can't deal with the genetic problems of spiteful mutants before we gain power. We're going to have to figure out how to deal with with spiteful mutants and gain power with the spiteful mutant problem in place. And, And that's and then we can deal with it later. That, that's, those are my thoughts on it. From a, from a purely theoretical point of view, it's completely true. It's a constraint that we have to deal with. And after we have power, it's a problem that I'd like to deal with. But until we have power, there's nothing we can do about it. And we therefore have to gain power by just ignoring the spiteful mutants or even co-opting some of them. That's how I, that's my take on it. It's true, but ultimately what it does for me, pragmatically speaking, is it just says, okay, we're going to have to have even better ideas because we've, we've got another limiting factor, another headwind that we've got to conquer 
but it's not that it's not giving us a solution, an alternative path to power. Yeah, I mean, this guy Bronski said, well, you know, if if uh, if Keith thinks genetics matter, why why is he posting stuff about philosophy and not just genetics? It's like, well, you know, if I had a substack that was entirely about like mutational loads, no one would read it, right? And we wouldn't actually reach the healthy people that could change society, right? Um, right. So yeah, and, and you know, this kind of reductionism, I mean, it does become really incoherent, like. He left a reply to me, you know, I said, well, how do you even separate these things? Because he's like, well, what percent genetics are you then? Is it 1%? And I'm like, well, I don't think you can quantify these things. Like they're obviously, you know, they, they interplay with each other, right? Um, and he said, you know, I said, if, if someone put you into power and they implemented your eugenics program and leftism disappeared, would that be because of genetics? Because the genetics change? Would it be because of your idea, the power that that had, that that people decided to implement it? Would it be the the economic system that put the elites in power that decided to promote this? Would it be their Machiavellianism of the individual elites that decided to pursue this program? Um, I just had a look at his reply. He said, if dark elves listened to my information and started breeding, all of the change in population leftism would be due to the breeding. The change in dark elf behavior before the breeding would be due to information exposure. Um, so again, he's saying it's all genetics, but it's like, well, due to information exposure. In other words, people encountering truth would change their behavior. Yeah, so, yeah. But you said if, if, it's one hundred percent genetics, right? Yeah, yeah. If if it's if it's genetics, then why are you writing about it? He's basically he wrote an article. He and Archer wrote an article uh, criticizing memes as a model for social change, you know, and, and putting forward genes. And the only trouble with this article is that it's written in memes. It's not written in DNA, right? It's, a, it's almost a performative contradiction. It's more of a joke, but still. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, when you say, well, if, if the whole world listened to my idea and everyone changed their behavior on the base of it, on the basis of it, um, all the changes after that would be because of the change in genetics, and none of it would be because of my idea. It's like, well, okay, uh, we're kind of doing mental yeah. tricks to make this no. reductionism work. Maybe no. we can just no. say they all, you know. I'm, I'm sorry, Guy, but it, on your own theory, in the beginning is the word. It's, it's the logos, not the genes that get the whole thing going. So yeah, yeah. And, and I would, I, I do believe that, for instance, we we have a lot more uh, genetic problems. I think most of the genetic problems that are showing up in the past 30 or 40 years, and I don't know how genetic they are. They have a genetic component. But problems with late, with people delaying having children until they're in their 30s and 40s. Right. And again, you know, to make the point that it's it's hard to separate these things, right? If if all these spiteful mutants existed in, in an authoritarian regime, uh, they wouldn't be able to express some of this. Like our society has the ideas, it has the memes there. It, it gives them the tools that empowers them to really express their spitefulness and to rule over people. So, um, you know, again, separating them just causes problems. But I actually wanted to ask you, I, I don't know when you're bringing in the next guest, but just before I forget and while we're on this topic, um, of, you know, how much of this boils down to biology. And you mentioned Aporia magazine. They're obviously trying to normalize discussion of HBD. 
there was an interesting substack I read yesterday by Nathan Kofnes. Um, so he wrote a couple of them. This first one was arguing, which I basically agreed with, that wokeism is just like natural behavior that comes from taking the equality thesis seriously. Like they're they're actually trying to achieve equality. And he makes this point that they kind of have a better answer than conservatives. Like conservatives just uh, ignore the problem that you have these great disparities despite believing in biological egalitarianism or, or they come up with kind of bad explanations like it's, it's due to welfare or something. And, you know, he said this is a, a problem for the right that they can't attract intelligent people when they have these just so stories. Uh, and I, I agreed with that. But he, he had another one um, yesterday that I think was in response to Hanania. Uh, so, okay, I'm throwing a few articles of people here, but I'd just be interested to hear your take on this debate. Because then Hanania did an article where he said, this HBD stuff is a waste of time. Okay, everyone has a phase where they discover an IQ gap between races, and then they kind of put it behind them. And kind of a similar thing to what we've been discussing and you said well you're only going to be interested in this if you already have a reason to want to reject egalitarianism or maybe you know believe in identitarianism push identitarian politics and if you're rejecting this it's not because you've looked at any science or any experts it's because you want to reject it because you like the equality thesis so really talking about hpd stuff is a waste of time um people will just use what they can to justify what they believe and so then Kafnas which is the article I want to get your thoughts on, wrote a response to this. And he said, no, the only path forward, the only way you can actually challenge wokeism is if there's a hereditarian revolution amongst the elite. And he said, okay, you know, you have these people that say, uh, you know, I'm a bit autistic on this, that I think people take truth seriously. Um, but he says, well, it could be like the Darwinian revolution, right? There was a time no elites yeah. accepted Darwinism, and then it became very popular in elite circles and it became accepted. And he's saying that should be the focus of the right. That should be the focus of, of any political movement before there can be change anywhere else is you need to normalize these truths of, of HBD amongst the elites. Um, and I was curious to get your thoughts because he's not coming at that from like a, a white identity perspective. Nathan Kofnis, like he, he, he doesn't like white nationalism, um, but he thinks you can normalize it without the identitarianism or without a political movement where you can just do it, at, you know, through the articles, through the through the essays, through the substacks. So yeah, I'm curious yeah. to hear your thoughts on that. Well, I I believe that that's definitely true. It's not the whole truth, but it's definitely part of it. Again, you you can't. Uh, he's correct. Hanani is wrong. Hanani is wrong about everything. He's been wrong about everything since he stopped being Richard Host. But anyway, um. Let's leave that aside. But no, he's correct about human biodiversity. He's correct that wokeness is basically driven by, okay, if you believe that people are basically fundamentally equal, and yet you find that certain groups are underperforming in certain categories and overperforming in others, underperforming in being university presidents and overperforming in being crack dealers or people in prison or whatever, and people are basically equal, you have to then say that these people are somehow being oppressed. Might not be conscious, might be conscious, might be a mixture of the true of the of the two, but society is wronging these people, right? If you believe in that they're fundamentally equal and 
you have unequal outcomes and you think equality is a value, then you have to conclude that these people are being wronged. It's, it's simply the only solution possible, the only possible conclusion. And the only way to attack this is to attack the premise that these people are fundamentally equal. Uh, and we have an alternative hypothesis. The, the, the alternative to the systematic racism hypothesis is the human biodiversity explanation. And it is absolutely convincing. The reason why you find very few black mathematicians and very large numbers of black criminals has to do with biology. And it can't be changed by society. And therefore, it is not injustice. It's actually justice. This is actually what you'd expect if society were more or less just. We, 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 we actually have more, you know, we, we have injustice in promoting Blacks to positions that they, they couldn't otherwise attain based on their merits. Okay, that's, that's there. But the, 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 the catastrophic, for, to egalitarians, there's this catastrophic gap between whites and Blacks in America that has to be explained. And even with all the affirmative action, it's still vast. And it needs to be explained. And, and so we thought it's systemic racism. It's Jim Crow. It's all these things. Those have been dismantled. And so we've had to come up with more and more occult forms of racism to explain how these people are being oppressed because the patterns, the disturbing patterns are there. And the only way to deal with this is to just be impolite and say, they're not, we're not equal, biologically speaking, and if we're not equal, biologically speaking, this is the kind of results that you're, we can expect. That's the only way to stop the insanity of woke, which is just another form of racial egalitarianism. It's just the latest brand. Before it was political correctness, uh, but it, it's the entire complex of, of ideas making excuses for black failure and blaming white people for black failure, inculpating whites, exculpating blacks. I mean, that's what political correctness is. It's just lying and injustice. It all boils down to that. And why do they have to lie? Because they believe in the fundamentally false idea that the races are equal and therefore in a just society, there would be roughly equal outcomes. So yeah, Kaufness is right. Is it the only thing? Well, no. But it would be enough to stop this woke stuff dead. Well, well, I'm uh, curious. Yeah. Uh, what do you think? Because he thinks you can popularize this stuff among the elites if it's yeah. uh, if it's kind of hygienic, right? He said, "Well, the reason a lot of people don't like this stuff or won't take a second look at this stuff is is they come into these circles and they find that the people that are talking about HPD are are anti-Semites or they have connections to." neo-nazis and he mentioned Amr and he said Amr and this had jq speaking there um and he, he's kind of saying if you just clean this stuff up right you separate it from the jq or separate it from white nationalism and, and you just present it in this in this very uh academic way that then it, this could get a great hearing uh, amongst intellectual elites um I'm, I'm curious what you think of that like that can you popularize hpd apart from identitarianism because i kind of think the opposite i think 
it's a very, very, very small audience of, that are people like Kofnis that will kind of, um, you know, kind of autistically study this stuff just out of intellectual curiosity. It seems to me much more people are, are willing to um, consider HBD because, you know, they start to think about race, maybe because of the realities of multiculturalism or because they already have a grievance and something like this offers an explanation or they already have uh, a problem with with uh, wokeism or anti-white policies. Um, I'm just not sure. I mean, the idea that you could popularize this stuff like on its own without any identitarian aspect, um, just because the facts are so powerful. It's like, wasn't Charles Murray getting popular talk show TV interviews in the 1990s? And did that get more popular since then? I mean, it, it seems like the, the egalitarian myth is, is more powerful than ever amongst the elites. So I don't know. I feel like maybe there is a bit of uh, naivety with, with Kaufness that he's like, if, if, if only we could just kind of uh, uh, put this out there without any of the baggage, it would be so powerful. Well, I, I agree with you in that. And, and that's something yeah, I haven't read the article, so I'm learning about it from you. And so this aspect of it, I definitely do disagree with. The reason why these are, are ideas are not being discussed is not because of all the grubby people who are associated with it. If you go back to the beginning of American Renaissance, right? American Renaissance was very squeaky clean on the the Jewish question, for instance, right? And uh, and they uh, they had Jewish speakers, including uh, people like Michael Levin, who's a human biodiversity expert, and so forth. Rabbi Schiller spoke there. Michael Hart spoke there. So they they did a very high class series of conferences. They they published the print newsletter. They published a number of books that got that didn't have any grubby anti semites associated with them on the platform uh, and so on. And they were actually on things like C-SPAN in, in, the, in the 90s. What happened is that the, the repression came down really, really hard on this early in the 2000s. And it was elite driven. It was leftist elite driven. And the, these ideas have been increasingly exiled. Charles Murray and Richard Herrenstein, Jewish, I think Harvard guy, published The Bell Curve. And this was extremely well-researched. Didn't have a, any, any sort of whiff of Nazi stuff or anti-Semitism or anything about it. And uh, yet this stuff was shut down by ideological egalitarians. So I, I don't think the reason why this, this got shut down was because of grubby, dirty, scruffy people like me, right? And if you just cleaned up our act a little bit, that things would go swimmingly well. That is naive. That was tried. That was tried and it was shut down. Now, maybe the elites are more receptive now than they were in the past. I think that's completely untrue. I think the elites are driving society over a cliff in, in their commitment to egalitarianism. So his explanation for why this stuff has not penetrated is false. We are not to blame. We are not to blame. We are not to blame because somehow we didn't get our PR right. That's, that's, that's a false explanation. 
PR right was right. You know, American Renaissance is, was unimpeachable, is unimpeachable, I think, as an organization and its presentation of ideas. And it was just shut down because people were threatened by this. People in power were threatened by this. And that's that. So uh, he's, he's wrong about that. Does this mean, though, that it's incorrect that we need to promote awareness of human biodiversity? No, it's not. It's absolutely correct. We have to get these ideas out there. We have to bring about a, cha- a sea change of ideas. Is it happening? Yes, I think it is happening. But it's happening in ways that are not going to be to Nathan Kothness's liking because it involves all kinds of scruffy populists and amateur scholars and people like that out on the internet uh, that he would just as soon not be associated with for many reasons, right? So I, I I think we're making progress here, but we're not making progress in the way that he would like. And we were not being thwarted for the reasons that he thinks we were being thwarted. I'd be interested to see you write a response to it, actually, because it's it's kind of funny. It is a it is quite a good article. I do actually enjoy his 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 writing. He recently started a, a Substack, but he is basically saying, um, you know, everyone will be a race realist if if not for those damned racists that are countercurrents and uh, and uh, Amaran. So it's kind of funny from from that perspective. But yeah, I wrote a, a kind of response to the the Kofnis stuff, not the specific article. It was before he wrote this. But just this kind of like, well, HBD minus the identitarianism, because I think Charles Murray did that as well, right? Like he's he's kind yeah. of a libertarian, right? And and, yeah. and he, you know, and he, he really disavowed like uh, you know genetic expo- uh, you know going too far on 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 genetic determinism or anything like that. But it didn't work for him, and, and that was kind of the point I, I made is like, well, people believed in in racial differences in in the U.S. before civil rights law passed, right? And and you know, they were beaten into submission over generations by, you know, the, the left that was much more motivated, uh, much more driven on this. And it's like, even if you did convince a, a segment of, of the intellectual elite that the stuff is true, are they going to do something about that? Because if they don't have that identitarian aspect, if they don't think it's right and just for, you know, white people to, to defend their interests and to have a society that benefits them, then... How many of them are going to put their hand up and uh, say, well, actually, uh, you know, angry leftists, actually, uh, those disparities that exist are because blacks have an 85 IQ. That just seems kind of naive to me, right? Um, Mm -hmm. Maybe they'll believe this privately, but is that going to enact any political change? I I think the hope of somebody like Kaufness is that he's, I I don't know what his view of an ideal society is, right? But I think his hope is that we can maintain something like the modern, multicultural, multiracial, technocratic system that we have just without wokeness. If we just own up to the fact that some people are not good fits in these society, in, in our society and that they're, they're not going to be happy here. If we just own up to that fact and and cut out all the wokeness stuff, then airplanes will not start, will not fall from the skies and things like that, which is the direction it's all going. We're, we're telling lies about race to the point where airplanes will start falling from the skies. Power grids will go down. Vast amounts of food will be contaminated. There will be large numbers of people dying 
The water system will go down. The aqueducts will stop working. The sewers will start working. Why? Because we just can't tell the truth about human inequality. That's the future that's being mapped out. And there, there are a lot of people, I think, who, who just want, they just want to go back to the 1990s, right? And, uh, but they won't get back to the 1990s because, without telling the truth about race differences. And lo and behold, back in the 90s, they were lying about that nonstop too. Uh, so I, I think that the, 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 the desire to just have modern multicultural civic nationalism and technocracy without lying about race is, is not going to happen, Okay. And, and, and how, exact, how exactly would that work? Well, you look at somebody like Hanania. Hanania's basically basic view, and this is also Christopher Rufo's view, we'll just police these people really heavily. We'll open the borders to people that we know are inclined to be rapey and thievy and gamble away their, their, all their, their paychecks in the first week and you know, all these problems. We're going to open the borders to all these problem peoples. And then we're just going to police them really heavily. If 13 do 60, we're going to lock up the 13. Just lock them up, right? Well, that's no utopia. Uh, that, that's 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 horrible. I, my heart goes, my heart starts bleeding for black people when, when, when I hear this, this view. Yeah, let's just keep them all here. Keep them in a system that is going to, that alienates them now. And when their, their retarding influence is removed, will alienate them even more because it will just be off the charts, more technological. Once we stop pretending right? That, that, that we're all equal. They'll therefore be even more alienated. There is a sense to this idea of systemic racism. I just don't think it's anything we should apologize for. What does systemic racism really boil down to? It boils down to this. White people create societies that are comfortable for white people. They're comfortable for our, us in terms of our intellects, their, our time preferences, our, our, our whole biological way of being. We create societies that are comfortable for us like well-fitting shoes and well-tailored suits. And non-whites who come into these societies don't find them comfortable. Why? Because they have different time preferences, because they have different average IQs, because they have different levels of conscientiousness and sociopathy and things like that. So they find our societies, even when we're being totally nice to them and bending over forwards and backwards to accommodate them, they still find our form of society alienating. And if everything is fair, they end up drifting over into certain patterns of behavior, more incarceration, more poverty. Even if everyone's totally nice to them and totally fair, this is going to be inevitable. And so my question is, why perpetuate that sort of system just because somebody like Hanania will, will, will not raise his hand and say, wouldn't it be better if we just separated? The, the, the idea that, that anti-woke conservatives are basically envisioning a multiracial society where 
we heavily police black and brown people and don't pay any attention to the fact that they're alienated and just say, this is just fair. This is just libertarian meritocracy at work, I, I think is unacceptable. I actually think the far more humane alternative is to talk about separation so that they have societies that they feel comfortable in. And uh, so, yes, yes, there is systemic racism. And this is one of the reasons why we need separation, not multicultural society with heavy policing. Anyway, those are my thoughts on it. Yeah. And another point I made when I wrote the colorblind meritocracy want to feed wokeism is actually in response to Bronze Edge Pervert originally, who was saying to embrace the uh, Chris Rufo meritocracy stuff. It's the only viable path forward kind of thing. Um, you know, you can't talk about HPD outside very niche circles. But yeah, another point I made is like, well, as, as society gets more multicultural, more multiracial, as someone like Kanania would want, um, you know, how receptive are these new immigrant groups going to be to the explanation that uh, they're in prison at 10 times the rate of whites because they're genetically predisposed to commit more crime? It's like, you know, do, do you think they're just going to um, hear out these arguments or do you think they're going to see that as, as an attack on them as a group and, and play identity politics? So it's like, even if you wanted to, okay, take the hardline anti-crime stance, maybe have a, a degree of, of race realism, HBD uh, acknowledgement and all this, it's like, well, it's still going to kind of fall on, on racial lines. Like it, it's going to be white people for the most part that are willing to listen to those kinds of explanations. And and a lot of these other groups are just going to see it as as a white supremacist justification for uh, targeting their group and, and underprivileging them and denying them edu yeah. education opportunities and throwing them in prison. So it's yeah. like you're kind of going to have to confront that anyway, right? Yeah, yeah. And and here's the thing. The only way they can make that work is is basically just dispensing with any pretense of democracy. Hmm. These people will simply not be able to vote, or if they vote, their votes won't matter, right? Because they will do identity politics. And therefore, the only way to stop that is just to basically get rid of voting or get rid of, get rid of any kind of, uh, you know, make voting not matter entirely. And that's, that's not going to happen. It, it's not going to happen at all. But, but they have to do that. They're, they're talking about a, a police state. They're talking about a police state, with an, an, a non-democratic police state. That's what they ultimately have to embrace, simply because they won't raise their hand and say, I think we should separate, simply because they want to say that people like you and me are beyond the pale, but we're really the only ones who are taking seriously what's going on. And the reason why we're taking seriously is, well, I don't know, maybe because we're uh, a little more adventurous than these people, or maybe a little more autistic, even a little more, aut even more autistic than Hanania and Kaufness. I don't know. The thing about Hanania that really bothers me is, and I, I put this in my little piece about him after he got outed, talking about what a great guy he was to work with when he was Richard Host, you know, was that the, the situation we're in today is that the left is totally intellectually bankrupt and totally in power. And people like us have all the arguments, all the solutions, and yet we're not making much progress. We're not making much headway. And part of the reason we're not making headway is because it's people like 
host or Hanania who are cowards. They're weak. He's a weak person. Uh, and uh, he, he wants to be popular. He wants to make money. He doesn't want to uh, go outside certain boundaries. Uh, and because of that, because of these weaknesses, and they're very modern, very capitalist, very bourgeois weaknesses, they win and we lose, even though they're intellectually bankrupt and we are in the right. And, you know, this, this just forces us to confront another dimension of this, which, which is the moral dimension, right? Uh, intellectually, we're in the right. But mor morally and in terms of morale, if you will, we are, we're lagging way, way behind uh, the left. The left, the left are monsters of vice and immorality, and yet they have incredible psychological intensity and will to power. They've got incredible morale, and uh, even though their arguments are totally false and uh, you know they're totally intellectually bankrupt, they're still in charge, and we've got to figure out how to overcome that. And it's self overcoming. Uh, the the first. <laughs> the, the first bourgeois conservative that you must kill is the one in your own heart. And unfortunately, Richard Hanania has not done that. And therefore, he's almost worse than useless. The only use that he provides is, 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 is basically as is a kind of cringe lounge where people can go to execrate him on Twitter and then find one another and, and follow one another. And he's, it's, it's good for social networking. Uh, he is doing us a favor in that sense, but absolutely no favor in any other intellectual or moral sense. Yeah, I'm actually uh, impressed by his level to do to do Twitter bait. bait. <laughs> like multiple posts and like the tens of millions of impressions just from people wanting to like name call him and and post pictures of his face and the replies. It's kind of funny, but yeah, I mean any 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 moral. Uh, you know, any moral pretense there might have been to his, his rejection of, of, uh, of white identitarianism. I mean, you know, since, since the, the outbreak of the Gaza war, he's, he's become, he's embraced complete Jewish supremacy, which, which kind of suggests, uh, your, your argument that he's, he's kind of cynically motivated, uh, in what he argues for might be true because I mean, he, on the one hand, he's, he's arguing against identity politics. And then he, he wrote a substack arguing that Israel should terrorize and, and starve the two million people in Gaza into uh, leaving their lands and he to totally ethnically cleanse Gaza so that there can be a, a, a totally Jewish state in the area. So, um, yeah, it right. certainly undermines any any pretense of uh, being opposed to identity politics, right? Yeah, it's just uh, he's he's ethnically Palestinian, too, which just makes him even more loathsome in my book. Hmm. <laughs> what do you say to somebody like that? Uh, he was actually signaling at one point that he would be—he'd lo love to be a, a Shabbos, uh, a Shabbos goy. <laughs> he was actually tweeting about that. The other thing that really got me—the tweet that really was just amazing—is he—he he talked about how grateful he was to get his his vaccine and to be part of this great experiment. <laughs> and I—I just—I just wanted to vomit because. This is the rational individualist talking about how how ennobled he felt to be part of something bigger than himself. <laughs> what do you do with people like that? Well, you you gather in their cringe lounge and you network, and eventually we're going to flow around people like that and win. 
I have a few more questions here. And our other guest doesn't seem to be coming. There, there might be some technical issue. So let's just wrap up after this. Dr. X Cathedra, thank you very much, has written in with 25 US dollars. In a recent debate with a Muslim apologist, Mark Collett said he'd accept a future Islamic Britain as long as it was a racially white ethnostate and had converted organically. I checked the transcript and this is accurate. I am dumbfounded. Your thoughts? Again, much respect for all you do for our people. I'm sorry, I never heard it. I haven't heard of this. I am dumbfounded too. Have you heard of this, Keith? I saw he was going on a Muslim podcast and I saw, I saw a brief clip they posted to Twitter, but I, I didn't see him making those comments. So I'd, I'd, have to, I'd have to watch it first, honestly. I don't want to make comments just based on, on the Super Chats. Yeah, yeah. Big if true. Yeah, big if true. I'll, I'll look into this, definitely. Friedrich writes in with 20 US dollars. Thank you. Greetings, not really a question, more like some remarks. First, if ideas weren't a paramount, then the whole establishment wouldn't work 24-7 to indoctrinate us. Second, Parvini must think of himself smarter than the ancient Greeks, where rhetoric was a lucrative and prestigious profession. Best regards to you and your guests. Well, thank you. K. Max McDonald writes in with 10 US dollars. In Greg and Keith's view, the Google Gemini fiasco was a big wake-up call for our side. Question mark. As long as we make whites see that they're being attacked for being white, if we just call it woke racism, that's not good enough. We must emphasize Google Gemini is anti-white. I, I agree. It's it, it, <laughs> This is a huge own goal for them, a huge win for us. I hope, I, I, I wonder if they're going to say, oh, we were just doing it for Black History Month's kids. It's just a joke. You know, we, we take it back. Keith, what are your thoughts on this? I thought this was a huge win. It was, it, was a, it was a vision of the future that these people want for us. And I didn't see us in our own future anymore. And, and that was a good wake-up call. Yeah, I did, a, I did a post last night on my Telegram and Twitter about that. Not from the perspective of like it was a, it was a huge win for us. But more from the perspective of like it's positive to see how conservatives are starting to respond to this kind of thing, um, because I, I don't know if there would have been such a big backlash to that ten years ago when it's it's specifically whites that are targeted, but now yeah you see these people like Elon Musk are are, are beaming this out and and increasingly conservatives are more willing to call out things that specifically target white people and yeah the language isn't great sometimes they, they say it's a woke racism i saw elon was calling it that elon said it was racist and anti-civilizational which is kind of maybe accidentally based if you think <laughs> about it he's saying uh, you know if you exclude whites you can't have civilization maybe that was uh yeah. kind of funny he does that he's trying to be uh he's trying to not be you know not push the boundaries too much about calling it anti-white but he accidentally uh pushes it even further um but i just think it's good you know i talked about like the the intolerant minority, right? That that drives change, and and the left certainly have this, and and these companies would be terrified of of offending the LGBT community or black people or Jews, um, and they take it for granted that they can just you know totally exclude whites from from their search engine. They can uh, totally wipe out white history in this AI, and and there'll just be no backlash, even though whites are the majority. But finally, I think you're you're seeing that conservatives are, are willing to exercise and intolerance i mean even the bud light boycott it was it was quite a success you know that when i first heard about that i kind of rolled my eyes right there another conservative boycott that will go nowhere but they actually stuck with it they were pretty principled on it there was a response from the company 
Um, and, you know, it, that would be a positive thing if they started to see that, look, you can um, kick up a fuss about this stuff. You can defend yourself and you might get rewarded from it. And it will be even more progress if they start to call it out as, as these things are, are specifically targeting us as whites. That will really mobilize them to become an intolerant minority, right? So I think yeah, that's progress. Yeah, yeah I, I agree too. One of the things that the first Homeland Institute poll looked into was the relative salience of the charges of wokeness and racism. And we found that racism is still a, a very, very terrible thing to be accused of, but wokeness is about 70% as deadly as being accused of racism. And for Republicans, it's it can be the absolute end of a political career. It can be an absolute end of a brand. And uh, Republicans in the United States are more and more willing to deal out deadly consequences, career-ending and brand-ending consequences for people who are accused of being woke. And politicians need to take this into account. Uh, corporate leaders need to take this into account. Once we have parity, we don't, and we don't even need parity, really. Even, even if they have a 1,000 nukes and we have 700 nukes, right, it's still enough to obliterate them, right? So even if even if wokeness is only 70% as career ending or brand ending as as racism currently, it's still a force to be reckoned with. Uh, and and the the rise of a cancel culture of the right is is definitely indicated by this. So I, I think that this is actually very encouraging. Folks, next week we'll be back uh, with another episode of Countercurrents Radio, and it will be our monthly book club. And the book club book will be F. Roger Devlin's book, Sexual Utopia in Power. He will be the guest of honor. I will be talking to him, as will Cyan Quinn. And if you would like to pose questions to uh, F. Roger Devlin, please uh, pick up the book. Also, a lot of people don't know it, but there's an audiobook version of Sexual Utopia in Power. You can get it at Countercurrents, if you want to just zip through that during your commute in the coming week and be prepared. We also have the EPUB version on sale if you just want to read through it very quickly and don't need to, don't want to wait for it to show up in the mail. And uh, I, I think it'll be a very, very uh, exciting conversation. This is one of our best-selling books. Before it was published, as a book, the articles that it was based on, uh, mostly from the Occidental Quarterly, were hugely influential on the higher end manosphere. So this this fellow is a is a pioneer of in, of our ideas, and uh, he's also very very articulate and very learned. So it'll be a great pleasure to have him on, and I would like you all to join us next week for for the Countercurrents Radio Book Club. And uh, until then, keep reading Countercurrents. Thank you. Mm-hmm.